Well, uh, thank you again for the privilege of preaching to you guys this morning. Um, these brothers have invited me to preach again. This is my second time, so I guess that means my sermons aren't completely terrible. <laughs> so hopefully uh, you'll be encouraged. Um, and thank you for praying for me. Some of you have mentioned that this past week you've been praying for me as I prepare to preach. So thank you. My heart needs the word as much as yours does. So May the Lord be pleased to work in our hearts this morning through his preached word. Well, the Christian's pilgrimage, this sort of life that we live under the sun, is very interesting. Um, it's interesting because it's mixed with both joy and sorrow. We are happy, but we are not naive to pain. We experience affliction under God's providence, and at the same time, we experience affirmations of his promises. There is so much to be joyful about, so many reasons to have genuine gratitude. At the same time, we experience what a dear brother once called uh, the vanities, he said. As Christians struggling through life in a fallen world, we constantly need something outside of ourselves informing our perspectives. Something that will keep us from becoming uh, cynical or uh, resentful about life under the sun. If you have your Bibles with you, the passage I'll be preaching from this morning is Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14. Now, in these verses, uh, the author, uh, the wise teacher, who most uh, Bible teachers consider to be Solomon gives us instruction and wisdom on how to navigate life in a complex and fallen world. So life is unpredictable. We, we know this. And circumstances are uncertain at times. But what we learn in this portion of Ecclesiastes is this. God is sovereign, and he has set times of prosperity and times of adversity. Scripture reminds us of our limitations. We don't know what tomorrow holds. So as we experience both good and bad in this life, we should look for what is good and remember divine providence. So let's start by reading Ecclesiastes 6.10 through 7.14. I'll give you a second to get there if you haven't already gotten there. Now, you might be wondering uh, why we're starting um, at chapter 6, verse 10. That may seem like a strange place to start. Uh, but it seems like 6.10 through 7.14 is actually one unit or one connected thought. So we'll start with 6.10 and then end with 7.14. Hear God's holy word. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will come after him. When you initially read this section of Ecclesiastes here, it can appear that the teacher isn't mindful of God until the very last couple of verses there when he says, consider the work of God. But he opens this section by saying the same thing in a different way. In Ecclesiastes 6.10, the teacher begins this passage with these words, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is. Now, in the Old Testament, often when something is named, it's uh, assigned, it's, it means that one has knowledge or authority over the thing named. God assigned names at creation, day, night, sky. Genesis 1.10 says, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. To name something was to give it its existence or dependence. In other words, verse 10 is saying that what happens in the present has already been predetermined by God. And so, by the same God, it is known what man is. He knows human beings, our stature, our nature. At the end of verse 10, it tells us that he, or man, is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The one stronger than him is the one who created him and knows his seasons. God is the sovereign and powerful creator of the universe. He named man. He made them human being, gave them their dwelling, and mere man cannot dispute with him. Acts 17, 25 to 26 says, that God himself gives all mankind breath, life, and everything. And he's determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. The natural man protests against God's fixed purposes. But in Ecclesiastes 6.11, here he says that with more words is more vanity. And what advantage is that to man? In other words... It's vain to dispute with God. It doesn't profit to argue with God because he sovereignly set 
all of our times and our seasons. What has come has already been named. You remember Job in chapter 42, verse 6, when he tried to dispute with God. After God rebuked Job by reminding him that God is the creator of the universe, Job replied in this way. He said, I repent in dust and ashes. The more words we use to argue with God, the more vanity. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes is sort of still setting up for what he is really wanting to say. He does this in verse 12 by asking a rhetorical question. He says, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Now, the word vain here in verse 12, it's not talking about the aim of man's life, but the breath of man's life, the the span of man's life. If you can imagine sort of stepping out of a warm house on a cold winter day in Chicago to blow your breath into the air just to watch it disappear. It's, it's vanity, he says in that sense. It, it, it's vain. It's here and then it's gone. This is the span of man's life. Then the preacher asks another rhetorical question. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Now, this language Um, What will be after him will come up later in this uh, section, really in chapter 7, verse 14. Uh, There he gives the answer, but here he just leaves us with the question. Who knows what is good for man and who can tell him what will come tomorrow or what tomorrow will bring? Will it be prosperity or will it be adversity? Will he get a pay raise or will he lose his job? Will he get evicted or will he buy a house? Will the results of the MRI come back negative or reveal that the cancer has spread to the lungs? These are the realities that the wise preacher is sort of pressing onto the conscience of man. He wants us to consider these things. He's saying, tell me who can answer this question. He's he's asking and the assumed answer is that no one can tell us what will come after us. No one can tell us what tomorrow holds. The future is veiled, the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. And so we're here groping and grappling with life in an unpredictable and sin-cursed world. And here in these words, we're given wisdom from the teacher. It's instruction that's meant to lead, not to despair, but to joy. It's not meant to lead us to pessimism. Actually, it's intended to do the opposite. It's meant to impart wisdom so that we recognize some good, even in the midst of adversity. And so he leads us into this series of Proverbs where there's a repeated theme of good and better. Good and better. So we'll look at uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14 in sections. The first section is verses 1 through 4, and the theme of this section is thinking about death is better than denying its reality. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. 
It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all things, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, this language you see in verse 1 there, a good name is better than precious ointment. Ointment may not have the same weight for us today as it did in Old Testament times. But in the Bible, ointment was a very expensive and extremely precious thing that kings kept as a luxury item. The proverb is saying that your good name is more important than great wealth. It's more precious than ointment. The phrase good name is referring to your reputation, which is linked to your character. As a Christian, your name is connected to who you represent. And who do we represent? Christ. And so there are some things that we've chosen not to do, some shortcuts we've chosen not to take in order to preserve or for the sake of our good name. Some ruin their name in order to get what they see as more valuable, uh, whether it's money or fame or honor or pleasure. Solomon, the wealthiest man to have ever lived, he was surrounded by people who had riches and great wealth, but they gained them through injustice or manipulation or lying or hurting people. There is a lot to lament over in a world that's filled with things like this. And it seems, to, and, and it seems that um, we can consider this in a way that is sort of uh, morbid, or we can consider what the teacher is saying here. And it seems to be why he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when my wife and I, we have three children, when we had our first, our son, we were filled with happiness and, and joy. I know I've, I've heard this morning in the prayer meeting there are some who are expecting, which is a, a wonderful thing. We have been waiting to meet our little one for nine months, and when we finally met our, our baby, we were extremely excited and joyful. It would start a new chapter in our lives, and there was so much to rejoice over. But we also recognize that birth brings us to think about another reality as well. Birth brings us into a world filled with the corruption of sin. We're ushered into a world filled with trouble and sorrows and trials and deceit and those pursuing vain glory. And one's experience of pain in this life is inescapable, the preacher says here, except by death. Death adds the period to the cares and trials of sorrows under the sun. The wise teacher says that it is better to think about the reality of what is inevitable. And so in verse 2, he says, he goes on to say, that there's something better about a house of mourning and sorrow over that of feasting and laughter. Now, I doubt that any of us wakes up and we've said, you know, you know what I'm in the mood for today? I want to go to a funeral. That sounds like it'll be a lot of, a lot of fun. I don't think anyone has ever said that. <laughs> Maybe in the history of man. I don't know. But most people, if they have a choice between a wedding reception and a funeral, they will choose to go to the wedding reception. 
Now, one of, one of those is not inherently evil and the other inherently good. We know that our Lord Christ attended both, and both are fitting to attend as we have occasion. But why does this passage seem to be reversing what we are naturally drawn to, the wedding reception, and what we are naturally drawn away from, the funeral? Notice that verse 2 doesn't say that it is sweeter to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, but it says that it is better. Now, the question is, why? Here's an exercise. What do you think about when you're at a New Year's Eve party or a wedding reception? It's not likely that you're considering uh, the fleeting nature of life or whether or not you're living wisely. You probably don't bring up conversations like that because you don't want to be a, you know, a, a buzzkill or a killjoy, right? You, you avoid those type of conversations. But something unique and profitable happens at a funeral or a house of mourning, as the wise preacher says. We tend to wonder how we're spending our lives and how we can be more productive and not waste the time that we have. The truth that life is a vapor is closer when we're at the bedside of someone in a hospital than when we're at a party. That truth is uh, closer to our minds and hearts when we're sitting with someone who has a terminal disease or when we're attending a wake. The house of mourning invites us to sit, to be still, to meditate more deeply on the reality of our inevitable end. And you be, if you become a student at a funeral instead of a cynic, you will, as the verse says, lay it to heart. In other words, you will keep the reality of death on your mind and live as though you know it's true. Now, this isn't just some type of morbid introspection. That, that, that's not what Ecclesiastes is communicating. We see the same idea and principle in James 4, 13 to 15 which says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It is wise for us to live with mortality on our minds. And it is wiser to consider what will happen after our lives pass. We should pray, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom considers the shortness of man's life and it takes it to heart. Now in verses three through four, we see a similar expression of what's already been said. He says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter and sadness makes the heart glad. Now, this is another really interesting dichotomy. How can sorrow be better than laughter? And how does sadness make me happy? Now, to understand this, we have to remember that the preacher is emphasizing something um, common but also uh, unique. It's better to think about death than to deny its reality. It's common because it's the reality of life. It's unique 
because we don't often think in these terms. We know that he's not the sort of anti-joy, anti-laughter preacher because those sentiments are talked about positively in other areas. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8.15 says, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil under the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Ecclesiastes is filled with this type of language where he commends joy. But what the preacher is opposing is a type of frivolous laughter, a type of laughter that makes a joke out of weightier matters in order to blunt the reality of life. It's better for that person that he feels the weight of sadness and death because it may perhaps teach him to make his life count. It may teach him to value and treasure the days that he has been given, which is good. So for that person who likes to just sort of be given to frivolous laughter, to blunt reality, that punch of sadness or sorrow may even turn him to seek true happiness. Those who have been spiritually reborn know this deep and true happiness. Jesus says to them, blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Those who mourn shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. The fool, they mock the reality of sin and death, later to embrace eternal sorrow and mourning. The wise man mourns over his sin and the reality of death, later to embrace the fullness of joy. You can see this sort of divine reversal here. This little section closes out in verse 4 by reminding us again that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning and the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, the heart represents the seat of our volition and intelligence. The, the, the Puritans had this way of drawing out the heart or turning our perspective to the heart that sits at the seat of our being and who we are. It's the center of our being, the spring of our wills. Essentially, Ecclesiastes 7.4 is saying that a wise person has a healthy obsession with death. His heart is in the house of mourning. Now, I know that sounds strange, but this isn't, as you might think, just someone who dresses in all black and they're influenced by the sort of gothic culture. They're sort of, they, they have this obsession with, with death. That, that is not what he's, he, he's talking about. This verse describes someone who's, who thinks uh, introspectively and skillfully about mournful situations. That's what that means. He finds occasions of mourning a classroom of wisdom. He's not wasting the lessons that are taught during those times. So these verses are contrasting one who is deeply aware of his fleeting nature with one who is obsessed with a constant and persistent desire to just laugh and party and live as though nothing else matters. That foolish man's heart is in the house of mirth. Here, mirth is synonymous with pleasure. His obsession with frivolous living and pursuing pleasure is shown by his constantly seeking whatever he can to drown out the reality of sadness. Scripture says that that man is foolish. 
Matthew 24, 38 to 39 says this. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And then they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They were blunting the preaching and the warnings of Noah because their hearts were in the house of mirth. They were obsessed with frivolous laughter and pleasure-seeking, drowning out the noise of the message of salvation until the judgment of God was revealed. We have to gain a heart of wisdom and seasons under dark clouds. When God providentially brings sickness or death to the doorstep of our minds, be a student in that season. Repent and believe the blessed gospel. The wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, which characterizes all men by nature. Jesus Christ is the ark of God's salvation from the terrifying floodwaters of the wrath of God. Do you want to be wise unto salvation? Repent and believe the blessed gospel. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this next little section in this passage, verses 5 to 6, these verses remind us that rebuke is better than the song of fools. So we've thought about how death is, or thinking about death is better than denying its reality. Now we'll consider that rebuke is better than the song of fools. Verses 5 and 6 say, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Now, in his commentary on these verses, uh, Graham Augen said that the rebuke of the wise is constructive criticism whose purpose it is to correct a behavior pattern that is morally questionable or detrimental. We don't naturally like to be rebuked. We don't want to be on the receiving end of criticism. We love compliments, but not critique. But scripture tells us about the benefits of rebuke. Proverbs 12.1, for instance, says, Whoever loves rebuke or loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Uh, the scripture isn't mincing words here. Psalm 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. There's something um, in this that there's almost this posture that says, let me lean into rebuke instead of away from it. It may not always feel good. It usually doesn't. But wise rebuke is a gift. And so in Ecclesiastes 7, hearing rebuke is contrasted with the song of fools or the house of feasting, and the house of mirth. Now, instruction that warns you of a destructive path is, or, or a better way to live is set over against those that will compliment you all the way to the grave. That, that's what this verse is sort of getting at. 
One of these is better than the other. One hurts initially, but has long-term benefits. The other feels good, but will lead to your destruction. Again, there's a sort of reversal in the way that we think about these things. And so the laughter of fools, which also is vanity, is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. What does that mean? First time I read that, I, it was just, what, what is he communicating here? The crackling of thorns under a pot. Now, this is imagery that points to the silliness of the laughter of fools that stirs up and erupts into a flame. But then it dies down, leaving only smoke or emptiness. So here's the idea. Frivolous laughter that blunts the reality is an experience that you sort of want to carry with you. When folks go out um, and give themselves to uh, whatever that vanity is, whether it's drugs or overindulgence and alcohol, there's an experience that they're trying to, 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 to grasp and to reach. And they're doing that as a blunt reality because they want to be able to take it with them. It, it numbs the reality of life for a time. But as soon as you go to grab it, this is what this language of, of crackling of thorns under a pot, when you go to grab that experience to take it with you, it slips through your fingers like smoke. The preacher says it's vanity. Now, contrary to this, where can you hear something worth holding on to? Where do you receive the blessing of open rebuke that has long-term dividends? The preaching and the counsel of the word of God. When the saints gather together, the prayers and the preaching and the songs graciously rebuke our selfishness. It rebukes our apathy. It rebukes our pride. Our faithlessness. And it points us to those eternal dividends of entrusting ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully it's not just smoke. It's always bringing us face to face with the reality of the substantial, weighty, eternal truth of God. Now, despite what the culture says and all of its anti-Christian rhetoric, those who are wise enter the place that reminds them of these eternal realities. And it's not the house of mirth, it's the house of the Lord. You are wise to be given to the preached word, wise to be given to the reading of scripture. Despite what the culture says, we are not fools, we are not naive, but the Christians are wise unto salvation. Now the next set of verses teaches us that the end is better than the beginning, verses 7 through 10. So we've thought about thinking about death is better than denying it. Rebuke is better than the song of fools. Now the end is better than the beginning, verses 7 through 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So this section starts by telling us that the wise are not immune to oppression or extortion when tempted 
by riches. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, Oppression drives the wise into madness. Now, what he's saying is that even the wise can start to have unwholesome business practices like oppression and bribery because of his covetous heart. I think I said 710. That's actually 77. Sorry. We can be tempted to uh, have unwholesome business practices because of coveting. He's speaking about a person who wants to be, uh, who, who wants to sort of have a quick come up or a quick fix. This leads him to emphasize that patience or the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patient takes the long road and upholds integrity rather than the quick fix or dishonest gain, oppression, extortion, or bribes. And so the end of a thing or the outcome is better. When one oppresses his neighbor to get ahead, it may appear at the beginning to benefit him, but it will not ultimately serve him in the end. The teacher is saying that the patient in spirit is better. It is wiser. So don't look for the quick fix. We can be tempted to look for the quick fix, to take a, a shortcut. Uh, the, the wiser route is to do this, which will take longer, more time, more energy, more effort to uphold integrity. But there's a quicker way to get from A to B that would cause me to ruin my good name. He says, don't be foolish in that way. Be patient in spirit. But he's also drawing out that the heart, which he says, ought not to be one who is quick-tempered. This is connected with verse 9. Be not quick in spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools or in the bosom of fools. So we act like fools when we are quick-tempered, quick to become angry when we don't get what we want. That type of person is praised by some people. It's almost seen as a virtue, something respectable when someone says, no, no, I don't have, I don't have patience for that type of, type of thing. On the way to church this morning, my, my family, we, we were listening to um, uh, Unseen Things, Sinclair Ferguson's little, little podcast thing. Um, and I forget the language he uses, but he talks about a man who says, um, I don't have the bandwidth for foolishness. Um, I, I, don't have, I don't have time for, for this foolish type of person. But he related, to that, he related that to someone who was quick-tempered. Here in Ecclesiastes, it's saying that one who is quick-tempered, they're, they're quick to give full vent to their spirit, is actually a fool. That should not characterize the man. Now, I realize we live in Orlando if you take local roads or I-4, or if you drive at all anywhere, you're tempted to be quick-tempered. I'm tempted to be quick-tempered. <laughs> but this should not characterize the Christian. If we find that in our hearts, we repent and again believe the blessed gospel. But this type of person is praised by some in the culture. Proverbs 29:11 warns us that a fool gives full vent to his spirit but a wise man quietly holds it back. In other words, he is measured in his temperament. He is self-controlled. James 1.20 tells us that the anger of a man 
that lack of self-control and quick-temperedness does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Again, there's this divine reversal. What's often seen as good and profitable by man is turned upside down. People see patience and self-control and meekness as weakness. But the heart of the man who is uncontrolled in his anger, and if he has it as his constant companion, Scripture says is a fool. Despite what the world says, despite what the world praises, the Scriptures praise the fruit of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fruit he bore, meekness, strength under control. Are you a person who's meek? If you have strength, if you have authority, do you hold it with a sense of self-control? Or do you flex at any moment you're given? That doesn't describe the meek person. Of course, Scripture doesn't call us to abandon the emotion of anger altogether. That would be unwise. Anger is good and profitable when it's appropriate to the occasion and when it's wielded righteously. An ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle, don't come talk to me after the sermon saying you quoted Aristotle. I know I quoted him. You'll be okay. (laughs) Aristotle said, anybody can become angry. That is easy, but to become angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, this is not within everybody's power and is not easy. Even pagans can discern the need for self-control. Only one person's anger produced the righteousness that God requires. Anger that was sinless, not tainted by pride or impatience or lack of control. In John 2.15, Jesus' righteous anger led him to make a whip of cords and to force money changers out of the temple of worship. And Psalm 69.9, talking about this occasion of Christ's righteous anger, says, For zeal for your house has consumed me. At the heart and seat of Christ's being was zeal to glorify his Father. He had righteous anger. So all the virtues of his affections were perfect. Christ, or rather Ecclesiastes, with the witness of the rest of Scripture, pointing to Christ calls us to model him, to model his self-control, his patience, his righteous indignation. He can drive out money changers, and yet the scripture said, a bruised reed he will not break. He is the perfect man in his affections and his being. We ought to model him. Back to our text in Ecclesiastes 7.10, it points us to a quick-tempered attitude in connection with impatience and discontentment. Uh, Charles Bridges said, impatience often produces a a quarrel-rulous spirit or a whining person. I always have trouble saying that. In other words, their impatience with their present lot from God leads them to complain about his providence. Do we complain about the providence of God? If we're honest with ourselves, do we first defer to complaining about God's providence or trusting in God's providence? 
If we're honest with ourselves, we would say in seasons we defer to complaining. Ecclesiastes, we say that at times that the former days were better than these days. Why are we going through what we're going through? Why are we dealing with what we're dealing with? We say that at times when we're under God's frowning providence. When we're in a season of adversity or sorrow or dealing with some trial. We wish that we were in every other season, any other time, except this current, present circumstance. This hard circumstance. We often look back, whether it's six months or ten years or thirty years, with a sort of nostalgia. We think that every time before our present time was better. But listen to this. This is original. I, I thought of this, by the way. <laughs> nostalgia is just a combination of a bad memory and a strong imagination. We look back and we forget. Each of those seasons had afflictions and trials. We just forgot what they were. <laughs> and so we look back and we glamorize the past. And we say that time was better than this time. We think back then it was so easy. I didn't have to deal with this or that. The wise preacher in Ecclesiastes knows that each season has its own unique challenges and opportunities. We can't make progress with one eye to the past and one eye to the present or the future. We can't make progress with one eye to a falsely glamorized past and one to the future. Praising our past like that shows our impatience with God's perfect and providential present. The past had the same things to complain about today. We just forgot what they were. It's not wise to ask, why were the former days better than these? So in the end, we can complain about the badness of our times, or we can reflect on the badness of our hearts and turn to God in repentance and belief in the blessed gospel. And we do this with gratitude and with hope and with gladness. Psalm 119.68 says, You, Lord, are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Pray that the word would inform your perspective and fight for joy in your present situation. This is your lot. And if the Lord has made it crooked, you cannot make it straight. And trust yourselves to God who is good and does good. This next section brings us to consider the wisdom, or rather wisdom is an advantage. So verses 11 through 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Now, this section starts by talking about an inheritance, specifically land. God brought Israel into a promised land with an inheritance. In the agricultural context of Ecclesiastes, land meant food, it meant security, it meant stability. An inheritance of land provided some protection in times of adversity. 
This verse is simply saying that just like an inheritance provides protection and security, wisdom also provides protection and security through life's various adversities. Now, this flows right into the next verse, the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Now, we see the idea of the protection or advantage of money in places like Proverbs 10.15. A rich man's wealth is a strong city. And Ecclesiastes 10.19 says, Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Now, the thought here is that there are advantages to having money. If you're hungry, money can buy you food. If you're about to be evicted, money can keep you from losing your apartment. There are advantages. But having wisdom is of a greater advantage. How? I don't think um, we should look at this in a sense of uh, money versus wisdom. But again, back to that theme, good and better. Money is good and useful. Um, The issue isn't money itself. The issue is whether we have a heart of wisdom with the money. Wisdom says, don't exhaust yourself to get wealth. Be discerning enough to know when what you have is sufficient, Proverbs 23, 4. Uh, Be discerning enough to desist, it says, to know when to pull back. Psalm 62, 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. So how is wisdom the greater advantage? Well, money may bring you friends or acquaintances, but wisdom will teach you how to manage those relationships. Money may keep you from losing your house, but wisdom will teach you how to manage your affairs so that your lifestyle doesn't exceed your income. Knowledge also makes people very resourceful. Verse 10 says that wisdom has the advantage because it can preserve the life of the one who has it. Now, the context of the book of Ecclesiastes is this vantage point of life under the sun. Um, We're thinking about the advantage of wisdom while we're alive, not necessarily after death. In other words, I don't think he's only referring to a wisdom that leads to eternal life, but a wisdom that allows a person to preserve and manage his life well while he's here on earth, uh, his affairs, so to speak, while he's alive. And that way, wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Now, we can recognize the context of Ecclesiastes, but we also know that Ecclesiastes sits within a larger canon of Scripture and the counsel of God. And the scriptures tell us that there is one greater than Solomon and greater than David who tells us how to preserve one's life beyond the grave. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And in John 17, 3, he tells us that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you sent. Death swallows both the rich and the poor. Those of low estate are but a breath, those of high estate are a delusion. And in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than the breath, Psalm 62.9. But Jesus gives life that is able to deliver both the rich and the poor from eternal death. This is found in the glorious gospel. Foolishness to those who are perishing, 
but wisdom to those who are being saved. And so we ought to, again, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 14, the author concludes with these wise sayings, and he tells us to consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the day of prosperity be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Why? So that man may not find out anything that will come after him. Consider, uh, observe, uh, discern, perceive God's appointments and providence. Under the sun, at the same time, there are people who are prospering or they're in prosperity, and there are people in adversity. The same person in this season can prosper and in the next season deal with trials and affliction. And then there are times where one time is experiencing prosperity in one area of their lives and deep sorrow in another area. This is life under the sun. His business is doing great, but his marriage is failing. Her son just got accepted into university on a full-ride scholarship, but she just found out that she has cancer. Ecclesiastes tells us to sit back and observe these realities. And remember, both came from the hand of God. Both are under his divine providence. Ecclesiastes 45.7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Light, dark, well-being, calamity. Both come from the hand of God. We cannot correct what God has divinely preordained for our various seasons of life. We might disapprove of our lot from him, but... He's given it to us. It's ours. It's yours. And God has made both to assure us that no man knows what will happen to him under the sun. This section of Ecclesiastes ends how it started. What happens has already been named. The rhetorical question is given an answer. Who knows what, will, who knows what is good for man while he lives his few days of his quickly fading life? God does. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, be still and consider. Thomas Boston, he wrote a book uh, based off of Ecclesiastes 6, 13. It's called The Crook in the Lot. In his book, he says this. Over time, our lot and condition will involve difficult events as well as agreeable ones. At times, things are smoothly and agreeably gliding along. But eventually, there is some incident which alters our course and pains us. It is like taking a wrong step that causes us to limp. But there is no perfection here in this life. There is no lot without a crook this side of heaven. As Christians, whether our lot seems straight and pleasant or crooked and hard, we can rest knowing that it's ordered and governed by a sovereign, good, 
and all-wise God. God is not man. He doesn't have one gaze focus on uh, some national crisis to the neglect of his children, to the neglect of our personal, individual cares and concerns. God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's immutable. He's the source of all wisdom. He's the fountain of pure love. And in case you have forgotten, he's good. Our lot under God's frowning providence or seasons of prosperity should cause us to turn to him. Life is complex and circumstances can be complicated, but God's purposes are fixed. They're predetermined and for his children only ever ultimately for your good. This has to be taken, it has to be believed, regardless of if God reveals his will, if God reveals the reason for our afflictions, our sorrows, you may never know this side of heaven. We live by faith in his purposes and not just by what we see. So become hopeful people, not cynical, not resentful, not pessimistic. Trust me, I know this can be easy to do. Don't harden your heart in hard seasons. Don't look for the easy way out, seeking self-gratification. As hard as it is, sit under God's instructive providence and let seasons of prosperity and seasons of sorrow teach you to look for what is good and praiseworthy. Remember the unfailing covenantal love of God for his elect. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief, is the God of joy. If you do not know Christ, may these seasons of adversity cause you to turn to him in repentance and faith. For those who have union with Christ, continue to entrust yourself and your circumstances to him. Your light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison and trust yourself to our good and sovereign God. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, with gratitude and hope and thankfulness, we come before you asking you to meet us in your preached word. And as the scriptures are read, and as we sing and even take the Lord's Supper together, we thank you for your kindness to us. Oh God, you are good and you do good. Lord, guide us by your Holy Spirit. Counsel us through your word. Be to us as you truly are, our heavenly Father. And we pray that in you we would find again hope and joy that we would have a sense of your presence with us as we read the scriptures and remember your great and precious promises. To you, O oh Lord, be glory, power, dominion, majesty before all time, now and forever. May you be pleased to, pre to, to bless the preaching of your word 
for your glory, the glory of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.